I really like everywhere to see a powerful, a powerful thing in them. Everybody should see a powerful thing in them. Yeah. Like everybody should see something powerful in yeah, you yeah. or in themselves. In themselves. In themselves. And everybody else see it too. Yeah. yeah. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone powerful? Yes. Yeah. I do. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. One of the constant refrains from instructors at Little Kitchen Academy is, our students teach us as much as we teach them. And the little girl you're about to hear more from is an incredible example of that. Maya's experience at Little Kitchen Academy was definitely a positive one, but she identified something that could be better. You see, Maya has an extremely rare genetic disorder, and that creates physical challenges for her in some situations. Now, like Little Kitchen Academy... Maya is far more focused on all of the things she can do on her own, but there are specific tasks that she needs some assistance with. Maya and her mother, Lucia, brought their perspective to the founders of Little Kitchen Academy, and the result was a policy change that has made LKA an even more inclusive and more equitable environment. I recently had the great pleasure of speaking to both Maya and her mom, and what's more, they invited me into their home a privilege I'm very grateful for, and one I don't take lightly. Maya has a smile and a sparkle that light up a room, and Lucia is a thoughtful, fearless advocate for her daughter and others facing inequities. Little Kitchen Academy is a better place because of Maya and Lucia, and I am a better person for having met them. I'm very proud to say that the 25th episode of Meet Me in the Kitchen takes place in their kitchen. Here are Maya and Lucia. Well, thank you guys for having me in your home. Thanks for coming. No problem. How's your weekend been so far, Maya? Good. I'm pretty tired. You're pretty tired? And that's normal. It is pretty normal, I think. Yeah. Are you an early riser? Do you like to wake up early or do you like to sleep in? Oh, I don't always to sleep in. You like to sleep in with, with your dad, yeah. Yeah, we definitely, we split down the middle in our family. I'm an early riser. And, and Maya's older sister, or younger sister, Monica, is also an early riser. And then these two are cuddlers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. I'm the early riser in our family. And the girls sleep a little longer. My youngest probably gets up earlier than my oldest if all comes to pass. But if they have their choice in the matter yes. that day, if there's not something they have to get to, like school. What kind of activities do you like to do, Maya? Art. You like to do uh, art? Yeah. Play Lego. Play Lego? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I like figuring a puzzle. You like figuring things out like puzzles? Yeah. Yeah. What sport did you do this winter up on the mountain? Skiing. You did some skiing this winter? I did sit. Sit skiing. Sit skiing. That sounds yeah. fun. Did you like it? <laughs> I loved it. Did you try to go fast? Yeah, I did two lessons. I did the touch for the first time. 
Yeah, so they took her down the cut for the last two lessons. That's a couple awesome. Of times, or we did. We took her down. I volunteered with the program as well. And, and it turned out you were with me. And it what? It turned out you were with me. It turned out I was with Maya, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think they put us together on purpose. I think their goal is that we can be independent together. So if I can support you, then eventually maybe I can also continue to volunteer in the program with other kiddos. That way we can head out with the sit ski ourselves. The cut isn't easy. The cut's pretty steep. Yeah. But you look like you had fun. I can see in your eyes you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was really fun. For the first half, do you want me to explain? Yeah. yeah, so the sit ski has these almost like training wheel sit ski attachments okay. that prevent the sit ski from tipping over. And it also, but it also prevents sharp turns. It also prevents what? Sharp turns. Yeah, sharp turns. So when you start getting to the steeper terrain, it really restricts your ability to lean into the mountain curve through the process and anyways so we went halfway down and then you know the slope changes as you get down to the second half and it becomes quite a bit steeper so the first half Maya was independent and turning on her own and we have her on tethers just for safety but she's able to manage her speed and the turns and all of that quite well now and then for the second half we took off the they're called outriggers these kind of training skis and we're more hands-on and Maya still got to decide when the turns happened so she actually took her instructor through some pretty fun terrain and he did a couple of jumps, I think. <laughs> that definitely got some air in the second half of that run, but I think they had a really fun time just going faster and down steeper terrain. Yeah. I know all about it because my two daughters are learning to ski as well. And my second daughter, my youngest, she sounds like you, Maya. She likes to go fast. And she wants to go places that maybe she can't quite go yet. <laughs> so we took her down the cut recently as well. She's not quite ready, but she wants to go anyway. So How'd it go? It went okay. It went all right. <laughs> we made it to the bottom. There were a couple of spills along the way. And yeah. Probably end of the day, not the best time for us to take her down. Maybe a little earlier in the day, but she she's getting there. Yeah, that's how you learn. It's true. Yeah. She's a daredevil. She's a daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> It takes one to know one, I think. It's like yeah. you know her already. It sounds to me like you're very adventurous. Yeah. I feel You get that from your mom? Oh, thanks. Are you adventurous as well? Let's I see. do like adventure. Yeah, I like pushing myself out of my comfort zone and trying new things. Yeah. And yeah, I'm definitely of the two, two parents in this household, the one that is maybe a little more of a risk taker. Has it been challenging at times to find activities? Yes. I think one of the challenges is that there are activities for a variety of abilities for kiddos throughout the lower mainland. Sometimes they're not offered in a really convenient location. Like wheelchair basketball has been a really fun sport for Maya to be involved in, but most of their programs are out of Richmond or across in like the Fraser Valley. And that's just not realistic for us to be able to do regularly. And then you come locally and, you know, there are definitely things to do. Baseball. Yeah, like baseball. We started doing Challenger Baseball, and that's been a really awesome addition to, to Maya's activities. But because it's a physical disability, it becomes challenging to find accommodations that meet Maya's cognitive and social abilities and 
accommodate her physical disability in a way that um, allows her to meaningfully participate. Baseball has been good. Sounds like skiing has been very good. Yeah, VAS, the Vancouver Adaptive Snow Sports has been fantastic. Challenger Baseball has been great. We're looking into starting wrestling on the North Shore, which Maya's really excited about. That really takes the playing field down back to, you know, more of an equal level when you're on the ground wrestling with someone. It takes away some of what could be a difference in terms of physical ability. And I think Maya's really looking forward to trying that. It is like wrestling. Yeah, she plays a game called Oh Yeah, which is essentially wrestling with her dad. And so now she's leveling up and playing recreationally is the plan. I think, too, though, that one of the challenges is that lots of people just don't think about it. And so these barriers are invisible. And I didn't have this lens 10 years ago in terms of what these barriers might look like. And I think a lot of our work is is advocacy, which, you know, I do from a place of real privilege. It takes a lot of effort and time and energy to advocate and bring people on board. But I have to say that when we have, generally speaking, people have been really receptive and grateful for the opportunity to build that awareness and incorporate sort of a more inclusive culture around their programming. It's interesting you say that because when I was thinking about things we could talk about, I was exploring the topic of inclusion. Mm. And usually, in my view, the people who create rules around inclusion or opportunities around inclusion don't always consult the people who need to be included. Is that a fair statement? I think that's a very fair statement. And I think that's common across the board in terms of power structures and areas of privilege in that often it's the people without the lived experience that are making the decision for others that could really provide really valuable insight. This program that I'm currently taking has a real strong social justice element. And so my scope of understanding of this in the greater context of society has really been expanded over the last few months. But certainly in our lived experience, I think... We're often doing the role of educating people in positions of power that are making decisions without understanding and they think they're making the right decision and they think they're making an educated decision, but they're just not aware of their blind spots. And I think we all have those. Like there's definitely areas in my life that I have blind spots and that I could benefit from awareness, but I think that's a very astute observation. So what does inclusion, true inclusion from your perspective as a family actually look like and feel like? That's a big question. (laughs) That's a big question. I think it's about equity instead of equality. So I think that distinction is really important and understanding the invisible barriers that exist for people to meaningful participation. I've been in conversation recently with Metro Vancouver Parks about some barriers to accessibility related to a pay parking change that they've had. It's a pretty unique situation and The process, I mean, without getting into the detail, we're still kind of in the middle of sorting it out, but the process has been really a process about educating people about what invisible barriers they've incorporated with a pay parking policy that inequitably affect people with physical disabilities. And I think it's their responsibility to think about the impacts of that decision. And while I can be totally on board with the decision, generally speaking, for the general population, there needs to be some thought put towards how that policy then has a fallout effect and how it may create unforeseen barriers. And so I think that 
to me, inclusion is all about looking at how we set things up and what kind of invisible barriers we're creating for different types of people and being open. And I think that humility piece is so key in not knowing everything, right? Being open to the lived experience of people that are taking the time and effort to come to you and tell you that something is wrong. And you may not necessarily accept their solution for it, but really giving it an opportunity to review what the situation is and understand it from somebody else's standpoint. And then there are experts, right? I'm not an expert. I'm, I'm one parent of one child. I have my own lived experience, but this is not something I have years of education in or anything. There are those people. There's organizations. The Rick Hansen Foundation is a great organization as it relates to accessibility for us. But there are consulting opportunities. And I think whether you're taking it from individuals, groups of individuals, or you're going to a professional sort of peer consulting group, there are so many ways to get that expertise and get that broader vision. And I think the organization is generally better for it, but the individuals and the ripple effect that that can have through their own interactions and other professional endeavors can be really powerful. I agree. And especially when we're talking about children in particular, not that this doesn't affect a wide demographic, but when we're talking about children in particular, you won't find anyone who says, no, we want to exclude a child. Mm -hmm. We want to be inclusive. We want children to feel as though they belong in every situation. And we may not know what it feels like, but we know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. like we know what it looks like because we see a smile on a child's face when they're involved. And I'm wondering where you found those breakthroughs along the way. Do you have a couple of examples, places where there wasn't inclusion, but because of some advocacy, now there is. Well, I mean, a very pertinent example to us is working with Little Kitchen Academy. This is really how I got talking with Brian and Felicity. They had actually done a really fantastic job of thinking through inclusion in how they set up their space. And I know Maya was really thrilled coming back from her first class there when she found that she was placed in a station that's built with accessibility in mind. The countertop was lower, the sink was automatic, right? The tap, right, the tap, you just tap the faucet and the water turns on. Like we have here. Yeah, like we have at home, that's right. And so there was thought put into how to make this equitable for somebody with a physical disability. And so I have to say, like, that is beyond what we experience in most settings where somebody has had the foresight to include somebody with a physical difference. We did run into some issues around support. And I think the Montessori approach is fantastic. I really believe in the theory behind creating independence with children, the over-involvement of adults often hindering that. And in our situation, Maya benefits from having somebody with her that when she needs it, um, and very specifically asks for it, somebody's there to support her with things that make it an equitable experience for her. And that involvement needs to be from somebody who understands when she needs help and when she's just asking for help and doesn't really need it, right? There's a nuance there in terms of kids need to struggle, right, in order to learn. And I think that very much aligns with that Montessori approach. And then there's a disability piece, right? Anyways, so without getting, you know, too in the weeds, I had a concern about the kind of the barriers that were being put up about supporting Maya with an outside support person. And I emailed Brian and Felicity on a Saturday night. 
And they responded almost immediately. I heard from them Sunday morning. On Monday afternoon, we were on a Zoom call together. They brought that humility with them and were just curious. They were open to learning. They acknowledged their understanding changing as a result of our conversation and committed to taking action quickly, both in terms of our specific situation, because the classes were ongoing. We were, you know, midway between the first class and the second class. And so an action needed to be taken. And I think for them, they're setting a precedent across the company. And so I understand it has to be, you know, a mindfully made decision. And I think they mobilized quite quickly to get the consulting that they needed from their legal team and kind of reflect on what this means on their values. It was an exhausting experience for me because you're always kind of leading with these are the shortcomings, right? Or these are the challenges. And that's an exhausting place to revisit as a parent. But I think the result, again, we talk about that ripple effect, right? So we're one family and we've, I think, influenced policy across the company, which is global. And with individuals that have, you know, their hands in many pots and will take this learning, I think, to a variety of places. So that was a really positive experience and a positive outcome for us. Well, and to be specific to this situation, and please correct any detail that I may get wrong, but in general, no outside parents or support workers for any child come into the environment. And part of that is that Montessori approach led by a child. Children can do that. And that's the policy overall with Montessori-based learning and with Little Kitchen Academy that you don't need to have a parent there. Yes. We believe in your abilities more than perhaps the outside world believes in it. However, this was an exceptional case. And in this case with Maya, there is a need to have someone there supporting her. And you have influenced change so that in a case like Maya's, there can be someone who comes in and helps when it's necessary. Not when it's not. Yes. But when it absolutely is. Yeah. And I think that that's the difference. I think and I get that as a parent of another child who's typically developing that, you know, you want to be involved. And I 100% am on board with the overall philosophy of parents stay out. The kids have got this and the building of confidence that that creates for kids. And then when you have a kiddo that, you know, needs help with some self-care tasks, you know, it's not fair to ask Maya to just accept whoever happens to be there to help her with self-care tasks. And so it's not necessarily somebody coming in there and stirring for her or cutting for her. Those are things that Maya loved being able to do on her own and figure it out. And in fact, the person that came along a couple of times was like, she's got this, you know, kind of defending her space and autonomy over the process. And so I think that the balance of support needs to be really clear. And you're right. I think this was an exceptional situation, but I think with that blanket rule of no outside support created an equitable access for Maya because I wasn't comfortable sending her for three hours knowing that nobody was there for her for those specific needs, even though from a participation perspective, I'm totally on board with her doing it all herself. What do you like about Little Kitchen Academy, Maya? I uh, How accessible it is? Yeah. And what do you like about the kitchen? Is there anything you like cooking? I can tell. Those apple pie cookies were great. Uh, yeah. Well, yes, I made them at home. You have made them at home? Yeah. And they were really good. Are you a pretty good cook? Well, I have the right slice. When I have the right tools and supplies around, I'm a pretty good cook. Yeah. Great tools and supplies make a big difference. I think you're a good cook. Well, I'm I glad mean, you've enjoyed your experience there. I made mean, the apple sauce from the recipe. 
Meat applesauce? Mom, from when I was with you. You did? Yeah. Many times. Many times, yeah. So Maya's taken that recipe and, you know, we'll help her kind of collect all the things she needs in one spot at the counter. And she just goes to town and she's made that applesauce a few times on her own. I guess we still have. I think we still have some in the fridge right now, actually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what it must be like for a child to experience inclusion that I think children assume was always there. What is it like as a parent? to see policy change and to see acceptance and growth. It's really rewarding. Like I said, it is an exhausting endeavor and truly it's something I run into weekly where I just see inequities or I see barriers and I really pick my battles. And I've learned that in order to be sustainable in my efforts, I have to really be strategic about what I pursue. I think I'm starting to learn as Maya gets older to pursue things that really matter to her. And I think there's an educational element in that too. And Maya, I think, feels quite empowered to speak up for herself when she sees injustice or she sees barriers that other people might not see. And so I would like to think that I'm doing some modeling of that. And so when we see a successful outcome of one of these advocacy efforts and we see change happen, it's rewarding to me as an individual, it's rewarding to me as a parent, but I think it also reinforces for Maya and for Monica, my younger daughter, you know, the value of speaking up for yourself. When you see something that somebody else isn't seeing and that effort does pay off, one person does have the capacity to influence change, which is a pretty powerful belief to have at any age, let alone for a kiddo. I know having the conversation with Brian about changes that were made, the conversation he had with you about why this needed to happen, one of the things that struck him was the word dignity Mm. and your use of the word dignity. And that really resonated with both Brian and Felicity. And if you could perhaps explain why that was such an essential part of this conversation in making this change. Well, I think asking for help is difficult for a lot of people. And I think when you have a disability, and I'm speaking of this as not the person with a lived experience of disability, so I just want to place myself in that. But my perception is that as a person with a disability, you have to do that a lot more. And Maya said this before, sometimes I need help, but I don't want help. And I think that that is a really important distinction. So when you have to ask for help, when you don't really want to ask for help, there's a dignity piece to that. And then you add an extra element of then having to ask somebody that you have no prior relationship with for that help. It just makes it that much harder. And so I think the ability to be able to choose who helps you with those things that you don't want help with but need help with creates a level of dignity that otherwise wouldn't be there. And so in this specific context, having somebody that's familiar to Maya, that understands her speech, you know, better, that understands how much to help her, how much she actually needs help. You know, it's not somebody foreign to her that over helps or under helps. There's just a lot less asking that needs to happen, which on its own, I think there's an air of dignity around that, but also in terms of the amount of time something like that takes, when you're there for an experience that's completely unrelated to the help that you're asking for, you're able to spend more time doing that thing that you're there to do, which is what makes it meaningful and how you become included in the process. And so I think there's so many elements to it, but those are kind of two that 
stick out to me. That makes a lot of sense. And I can see that you're someone who can do so much more than a lot of people think. Can't yeah, you? Yeah. I really do not like when everyone says that. Like when you have to us. Really annoys. Yeah. Did you get that, Scott? I think so. She said she doesn't really like to get help that often and, and it can get annoying. Yeah, she doesn't like it when people try to help too much. But that's really <laughs> annoying. Yeah. Especially hands-on. Yeah, people probably mean well and they want to try to help, but you're like, I got this. Yeah, I want it right now. Like walking right now. Yeah. Well, and I think part of your example in this particular case, and you've probably encountered this in other situations, I'm guessing, maybe wrong, is that people are well-meaning when it comes to inclusion policies, but sometimes in creating them, they actually create other barriers, those blind spots that you talk about that make it too challenging to be inclusive. Yeah. My understanding is that there were prior examples of this in our specific Little Kitchen Academy location. I don't know the details, so that's a really broad statement. But I just think about, again, you know, it's a very long email that I wrote them. And you have to think about how you say things, right? I think that's also what makes it so exhausting because you know, you want to be very clear about what the issue is and you don't want to come from a place of attacking someone. And I think that that understanding that people are doing their best and it's not good enough is a really difficult thing to communicate via email. And I was really grateful to even have the opportunity to email them directly. That was a lot of internet sleuthing (laughs) to be able to figure out how to reach them. But, you know, it's just the resources required. I have a business degree. I've got years and years of communications and writing experience under my belt. And there's no doubt that my ability to communicate those things comes from my privilege of having that education and being able to communicate in a way that is effective. And I just think about how many times, you know, I live in a committed stable marriage. We're financially comfortable. It's not like we're, you know, rolling in the dough, but you know, we don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. There are lots of places where I don't have drains on my energy, on my time, on my resources where others might. And so I recognize that many people feel the same things I feel and can't for whatever reason do the work that I did in this one case to move the needle forward. And I think that that makes me feel more responsible too for doing it when I do have the capacity. And there's other times where I've been that person where I'm just not resourced. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. You know, there's lots of reasons why I've chosen to step back instead of stepping into it in the past as well. I imagine there's some situations where you've advocated and it hasn't worked out to your satisfaction over the course of Maya's lifetime. How helpful is it to have successful example, like in the case with Little Kitchen Academy, moving forward for other barriers you may encounter with new activities or different environments? Well, I think a few things. I think that on the personal level, having the belief that your efforts make a difference are definitely a part of it. I think on a broader scale in terms of having examples, you know, you can speak to, and I don't think I would specifically pull Little Kitchen Academy out without Brian and Felicity's consent, because obviously this is well, now it's going to be on a podcast, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't know that I would necessarily bring in the details of the situation, but I have in the past used examples, for example, right now, this Metro Parks thing with the pay parking, I have referenced other park parking 
policies that have successfully considered accessibility and these invisible barriers and incorporated consideration for them to mitigate that and create equitable access. So I definitely use it as a reference point for how other organizations can do better when I come forward. And there are examples. There's examples of companies and government organizations actually putting money where their mouth is. And then there's also a lot of talk. And I think that that's, you know, from a strategic perspective, looking to how a company or an organization present themselves publicly is often very much, especially now, around inclusive and equitable access. You know, that's very cool now. And then you come into an actual situation where they're not living it. You know, when you question that in a strategic <laughs> kind way, it really forces people into an uncomfortable situation where they have to address that discrepancy. And often that's where that change happens. And I think people may have a perception that it needs to be broad sweeping changes, overhauling a system. Sometimes it can be a very small change that creates a bigger change of perception. One of the stories I was reading about your family when I was preparing for this interview was about just changing the symbol. Mm. for the dynamic movement symbol for disabled access as opposed to the traditional one. That seems like a very small thing, but I imagine it makes a big difference in terms of perception. Yeah, so you're referencing that blue icon for most often people see it for accessible parking. And yeah, so that was actually an effort Paulo, my husband, undertook with Maya a few years ago. And he approached that municipality by municipality, received some no's, which was a little bit surprising and shocking, but also received some yeses. And there are municipalities around the lower mainland and up the Cedar Sky that adopted that as a result of their efforts. And yeah, I think perception is huge, right? And going from that kind of very stationary, helpless look to something that's more action-oriented and shows ability and shows autonomy. changes how people see things. And I do think it's subtle. I do think it's subtle, but people notice. Here's what someone can do as opposed to a perception of what someone can't do. Yeah. I have heard criticism, though, of that kind of more forward motion icon. So I just want to give that, you know, a voice here, too, in that not all folks are independent and able. So I think there's a balance. And I also, I, I want to be really cautious about speaking for all disabled people. I'm not a disabled person. I, you know, I, I speak from my one lived experience and there's so many contrasting viewpoints. For us, this really hits home and that's why we decided to do it. It might not mean that everybody shares that viewpoint though. That's a very fair counterpoint to it as well. And only through consultation and going through these types of conversations are we going to get to where there's a satisfactory result, I would think. And there is more inclusivity and there are programs in place and there are symbols in place that are acceptable yeah. to everybody. And there's a better understanding, I suppose, more than anything of what it means to be in a place where you haven't been included. I just think that feeling I see when I look at your daughter and how capable she is, is the feeling that everybody should see. Yeah. I think I feel like everywhere to see a powerful, a powerful thing in them. Everybody should see a powerful thing in them. Yeah. Like everybody should see something powerful in yeah, you yeah. or in themselves. In themselves. In themselves. And everybody else should see it too. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think there's definitely a connection between how you're perceived and how you view yourself. Yeah. And I think that that can be influenced in either direction. And then questioning, you know, when people see just the limitations, inviting them to take a broader view and see the ability. Some people do that much better than others. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone powerful? Yes. Yeah, I do. Good. I'm glad you do. Everybody should feel like that. I just wanted to pull up this document because... I saw this quote that you gave a few years ago, Lucia, and I just wanted to get it right when I was reading it back. You said about your daughter, Maya, she's an incredible, incredible human being who has changed so many people's perceptions in life. How has Maya changed people's views? Oh, that's yeah. I didn't expect you to pull that out. Oh, I think Maya has helped people see the person behind the disability. One of the things about rare disease that you know, there's lots of really difficult things about not having all the data that you would have for something that's more common. But for my specific disorder, which is called ADCY5 related dyskinesia, she was the 12th known case worldwide. Extremely rare. I think underdiagnosed, but still extremely rare. And I think with that rare nature comes a bit of a blessing in that no one's pigeonholing you and what your future might look like. Pretty much with any diagnosis, you can't really know what the future holds. And there's lots and lots of examples of how people defy kind of scientific expectations. I think with rare disease, doctors will not even attempt to tell you what the future looks like. And in that lies some freedom in setting your own path. And, you know, we continue to be surprised, impressed, thrilled, relieved with all of the ways that Maya has persisted through the challenges that her disorder presents her and makes meaning of her life and of her involvement and her relationships. And I think being seen for those things is a real gift. And it changes, you know, her ability to show up in that whole way and to continue to kind of change people's perceptions of what is stable, you know, that she can persist and she can persevere and she can you know, blow people's expectations out of the water. And, you know, we come across these examples periodically where something happens and we're like, wow, this is not something you were able to do two weeks ago or a year ago or two years ago. Like you walking. Yeah. Maya started a new medication a couple months ago and we just kind of got to therapeutic doses and it's created a lot more independence for Maya. So she's able to walk quite a ways without a mobility aid. And so we're just kind of seeing how that's going to, you know, impact the future. But we don't know. We don't know. And that's kind of the beauty of it is just knowing that all the work that she's done over the last 10 years of her life have brought her to now with the assistance of this medication to be able to do things that she wasn't able to do even, you know, three months ago. And so you never know. You never know. And just being open to that unfolding of things as it is. And I I just, I have no doubt Maya's going to do incredible things in her life. And I just, I can't wait to see what direction she chooses. I've just met her and I feel the same way. (laughs) Everybody who comes on this podcast gets asked this question. So I'm going to ask it of both of you right now. What is the one ingredient that is always in your kitchen and why? Love. Love. Yeah. Love because love I feel what I like somebody with my food. Love shows how hard somebody works when they make their food. Yeah. 
That's a great answer. I love it. I love that you didn't take that literally and that you, yeah, it's true. Love is the secret ingredient, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a very practical answer to that question, which is nutritional yeast. (laughs) I really like nutritional yeast on pretty much everything. So we talk a lot about adding love to our meals. And I can't take that answer because that was Maya's answer and not how I thought about the question, which I love that you thought that's where your brain went. Let's say both love and nutritional yeast has that. (laughs) Sometimes I love for nutritional yeast. (laughs) Might have to brand a nutritional yeast with the word love. I think that's maybe what you need to do next. Well, it all ties back because family is love. I think one of the remarkable parts of this story is the other connection your family had with Brian and Felicity unbeknownst to anybody until this situation arose. Can you describe that? Yeah, it actually wasn't until well after the situation was resolved. I think we were over at my parents' house and we were just catching up on life. And we'd mentioned that Maya's been going to cooking classes and my dad was like, oh, where? So I told him, you know, Little Kitchen Academy. And he's like, oh, interesting. He's like, I've been working with them for many years. And so it turned out that he didn't actually even know when he said that, that I had connected directly with Brian and Felicity. But He's been working with them for at least a decade on a variety of projects, supporting them through kind of IT related things and just had wonderful things to say about them. And it was such a poignant time to make that connection because I didn't feel like it interfered with the process. I didn't feel like their decision making was influenced by the fact, you know, I have a married name. They would never have made a connection between my birth family and and my last name now. Their decision was made completely isolated from their knowledge of this other connection. And then to discover that they also had, you know, this kind of behind the scenes connection to my dad and that they had such wonderful things to say about each other just kind of reinforced my impression of them too, you know, of the types of people that they are. And yeah, it was a very cool kind of connection. Absolutely. And I can't speak for your father and I know you can't either, but We all want to work with people that we consider good people and are doing good things, but you never really know. And you got a real life example of that, seems to me. Definitely. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't surprised when I kind of gave him the full story of how things turned out. I think he's been working with them long enough and closely enough to know the types of people that they are. But, you know, to see that consistently show up in different areas of people's life, you know, when you're dealing with somebody as a client, it's very different than when you're the service provider, right? And there's a different power dynamic in those relationships. So to see that they show up consistently in that way, regardless of where they're at in that relationship, I think is just a testament to the type of people that they are. What does the immediate future hold for your family, for Maya? Like immediate? Maybe we're going to go swimming today? (laughs) That's very immediate. (laughs) You like swimming. I can see you're smiling. Yeah, I like swimming. We haven't done swimming at all. Yeah, swimming's a very, I mean, now we're going way back in the interview, but swimming is a very difficult sport to get adaptive support in. Yeah, there's often only a handful of time slots when they open up registration. And of course, there's <laughs> way more than that in terms of students who need it. So it's very frustrating. No, we don't have a spot this term. Yeah, you, you have to log on. I mean, it's like swimming registration for typical kiddos, but with there's one spot for each slot. So if you are not the person that 
has the fastest internet connection <laughs> and the fastest trigger finger. You know, there's not even six or 12 or whatever spots that you have in the other classes. So that is, I think, a, an upcoming battle. <laughs> this might be what my future holds is I've been contemplating approaching the rec center about how inequitable this access is. So they hear this, maybe it's a bit of a heads up. And, you know, I think if somebody wants to go in on that with me, I'm always happy for doing that. But that's definitely an area that's been frustrating for me for a long time. But it feels like a really big thing because it's a big organization and you got to get connected to the right people in order to create change. So yeah, that's bubbling under the surface for me. Well, in speaking to both of you today, I have no doubt that the policy will change. I don't know when, but <laughs> you guys are doers and you get things done. Thank you. I hope you're right. Thank you guys for having me in your home today. And thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen?